massive welcome to Mark LaBusk and we are so excited that he's here to join us on our Humans at Work podcast and we are going to be chatting to him this afternoon about a whole range of different topics, not least of which is going to be about human skills and the development of human skills in workplaces and how that's really important for uh, how we're going to shift into the future of work as organisations. But, Mark, maybe if you can kick off just by sharing um, what work you actually do, who you work for, what some of your clients are like, etc. Okay, thanks, Michelle. Thanks for having me on. I think this is a, a, such an important topic around human skills. Um, sort of work I do. Um, look, uh, my work, I guess, there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of bits to it. The, the really important part is about getting organizations and the managers in organizations to start to understand that um, that if you can combine the technical and all of the things they learned that got them promoted if you can combine that with these human skills that that we'll talk a bit more about later on putting those together can create some amazing things so I guess my focus is is getting um, businesses to understand that this work's not all kumbaya and soft and warm and fuzzy. It's actually important work to do in order for organisations to drive up, you know, the things they want to drive up like employee engagement, um, reducing attrition, um, and ultimately, you know, driving better bottom line business results because that's why we're in business to make a profit. Uh, one of the things I like to talk to clients about is there's, there's easier ways to do that if you start to embrace um, the, the human stuff. And who, who do I work with? Um, I, I actually, I usually just say humans. And, and, and the reason I say that is I do work with lots of industries, elite sport, um, in retail, government, um, construction, a whole lot of different places. And perhaps a little bit like you, given we're in the same sort of space, you, you'd understand that when you go back to the human level, most of them have got the same sorts of issues going on with people. It's just that sometimes they like to hide behind, you know, I work in elite sport or I'm a techo or I'm an engineer. So, and I, I, what I try and do with that is to break that down back to the idea that um, we all want to be deeply connected. We all want to feel a strong sense of belonging and those things will come when we embrace the human skills. So that's, that's sort of a bit of a, a quick, quick background. Mm, great. And you referred to some of the challenges that organisations have in and around a whole range of different areas. What are some of those challenges that you find yourself specifically working with? Oh, let, let, let me talk about the, 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 the greatest challenge is, is to be able to let go of an old system that has rewarded them. So, so if I talk about quickly about the way we all get to where we get to in organisational life is usually because we've been technically good at something. So, so for me, when I started my career in logistics, I worked on the afternoon shift, so loading planes and driving trucks. And, and because I was good at sorting parcels into the right bag, they promoted me into customer service. And because I was good at finding missing wedding dresses on a Friday, they then promoted me into a people management role. And I was lousy at those things. So what I, what I knew as I grew up and as all of us have grown up in organisations is <clears throat> we, get we get promoted on being technically good at things and then we end up in a people management role and it's a real challenge because we don't know what to do. So the first one is to let go of this system that's rewarded us. Don't totally let go but understand that that's only one part of becoming really, really effective at our role. So I think that's, that's the first challenge. I think the second challenge is it can be quite difficult to measure the 
um, the, I guess the success or otherwise of stepping into this work, people people are driven by KPIs and, and, and managing what they can see, and I get that. But some of this work actually takes longer and sometimes you don't have a KPI sheet for it. So I think there's a challenge there on people taking it seriously enough because, you know, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it is, I guess, the, you know, the Drucker thing. But, um, but I think that's a, that's a challenge as well. And then the other one is um, we are human beings who are adaptive, but at the same time you've got to think about it this way. And I, I talk to my clients about this a lot is, in order to change um, and be better as managers, we've actually got to face into some of the things we do ourselves. And I think one of the biggest challenges is people don't like to put the mirror back on themselves. We're very, very good at holding the mirror outwards. And, you know, if I said I'd be a better manager if Michelle was a better boss and it's like, no, no, turn the mirror back the other way. So I think they're the, big, they're the really big challenges, particularly the first one around the system and then the last one around doing the work of self. Yeah, and look, I entirely agree with those, but the one particularly is the last one that I want to dig into a little bit more because I think that's where um, that's where the human skills of self-awareness and things related to that really come into play, whereas I call it us being grown-ups in an organisation because yeah. instead of being kids where we're still running around trying to blame everyone for what, for what we've done wrong or... Um, for them not being good enough in our eyes, it's it is about the humility of taking the ownership of our own behaviour on, and being grown up about developing that and realising we've got a lot to learn. No matter where we are, we are on an awfully steep learning curve. The minute you start talking about human skills, you open a can of worms, you know. Yeah. And and I think that that's that's so important. What what do you do if someone is resisting that? I think I think something that's really important here I learned in, in my time at studying and practicing the adaptive leadership framework is one of the things we were told was to meet people where they're at. So I think there's this, you know, walking into that room, even, I've got to be really aware of the way I turn up in the work that I do. So walking into that room and let's say, again, I use you, let's say I see Michelle and I, I can see Michelle's absolutely ready for this work. She's ready to dive into self-awareness and, and to become better but there's you know there's um there's John sitting in the room too and you can I can just see that he's got his arms folded he's looking out the window he's not participating so it's like meeting people where they're at and letting them just letting them just step into it at a at the pace that works for them yeah. um, I can say in six years of doing this I've only ever asked one person to leave the room and I'm talking about thousands of people coming to do the work because he just he just basically said, I was sent here and I hate this and I'm not going to do it. It's like, okay. Um, and it was going to impact on the other people in the room, so I allowed him to, to leave. But for other people, you can see them starting in their sort of resisting way. I think it's like helping them to know that it's okay to take their time. And then the other one I'm going to say here um, I'm very much into going first. So anything I expect people to do in the room when I'm doing this work, I'll actually share an example of because I'm a, I'm a human and I'm a flawed human as well and I've done good things with managing and I've done bad things with managing and I've held the mirror outwards and, and, and I've learned to hold it inwards. But I think when as a facilitator, as an expert in this area, if you're prepared to show that you've been through it and it was challenging but you're still here, 
I think that helps other people then to, to, to understand that, you know, when Mark tells a, a vulnerable story or about something that he did that he's not proud of or something that he was proud of, you know, the roof of the building didn't cave in on his head. So he, he survived it. And then I think that helps other people to step into yeah, you're really well. demonstrating by leading the way yourself. And that, as you say, that's so critical as a facilitator. And I think it's your humility and your willingness to do the work that is the um, factor that allows people to grow or not within that session as well. You know, you can tell really quickly if there's a facilitator that's not willing to do the work and that stymies the growth of everyone else around them. I think we usually see those facilitators head straight to the um, the PowerPoint deck and just start running through slides without sort of, you know, even talking about human beings want to make sense, Michelle. They need to make sense of why they're in the room. I think part of it is helping them to make sense and then usually making sense by hearing stories rather than seeing a PowerPoint slide. Not that I'm against them, but I'm just saying that it doesn't help if you can't bring some credibility to, to this sort of work. Yeah, and I think people are very, by and large, people are clever and they're intelligent and they know if they're being had or they know if you are a genuine human being, you know, and they make that decision up probably in the first 10 seconds of you walking into yeah. the room. <laughs> yeah, oh, look, I, um, I hope I can say this, but human beings have incredible bullshit detectors and, and, and you know, they turn on the moment that, like even if we're connecting on LinkedIn, and you can read stuff and you're like, yeah. And then we met for the first time and, you know, like I said, the bullshit detectors go on, but they didn't go off. It was like we started talking. It's like, hang on, she she, she seems just like me. It's like this is and, – and as humans, we're trying to find things that, will, you know, help us to know that it's not right. But there was no detectors going off when we first met. I hope it was the same way around. But that Yeah, definitely. That we wouldn't be here if it wasn't. <laughs> What a stupid thing for me to say. <laughs> but I think that's an important piece is this credibility piece is that, that you know, and even today with what's going on in the world and people are talking about humanising workplaces and, you know, I know you've been at it for a long, long time as well as I have and it seems that everyone's sort of getting into the H word right now. They, yeah. They're wanting to become the human expert when before they might have been working on difficult conversations or, they, you know, whatever it might have been. So yeah. it's funny it's how things change. It's great because it's a real groundswell for it, but I, I think it comes with a really deep sense of responsibility as well. Yeah. And that's, you know, the responsibility is what we were talking about uh, of us being willing to do the work and the hard yards and the reflection and the, the painful change and challenge in our own lives in order to be able to help people walk along a certain journey. And Absolutely. I think that's where people's bullshit detectors go off. If they can smell that you haven't done that or they believe that you haven't done that for whatever reason, then you get them for two seconds and then they're lost. And, you know, the problem with that is that no one learns and you're not, you, you don't actually do the job that you're there to do. So, yeah, I think that um, if I, if I reflect on the percentage of, if I looked at my work as a, as a hundred percent, I reckon, 75% of the work I do with my clients is the work of self. Yeah. It's, it's that, it's, that's, that's the important work. In order to manage others or lead others, you, you must be able to manage and lead self. And, you know, I, I used to go to lots of, I loved, I loved development stuff. And I was back in corporate, I would be the first one to sign up. But I think we used to, we used to maybe fill out a psychometric profiling, which I didn't mind doing. And it would tell you a bit about yourself, but, that was sort of all we did. We didn't then get into 
into that more deeply, we then would tend to focus on, you know, motivating people, having difficult conversations, doing all of that important work, but still not understanding yeah, ourselves. Yeah. And, I, and I have this view too that, you know, we are all our very best and very worst experiments. And, and, and we've got to be prepared to, to take the best that comes out of our experiments on ourselves and to take the worst and learn from, learn from both. Yeah, and I always say we're also our own um, worst enemy and our own best friend. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. some of the things you've said today about, you know, the growing up bit as well. And and, and they, I, I'm going to steal some of those things if you don't mind. I'll, 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 I'll reference you, of course. But, uh... <laughs> They're not mine. There's not an original thought. So, you know, it's okay. <laughs> oh, very good. No, I think um, one of the things I'd, I'd like to ask you about is in my travelling around workplaces, one of the real issues that I see in workplaces is that they are not designed for humans in the first place. They're designed to produce a widget in the shortest possible time in the era of the Industrial Revolution and no one's ever thought to go, well, actually, it's it's all these humans that work here. I wonder what humans would actually want in the first place. So I see that as a massive failure of organisations today is that they're not human designed, they're not human centric to start with. So that creates, you know, 80% of the challenges that we see because they're not actually designed for humans to be in. I'm just interested in your view on that and whether you see that in organisations as well. Um, I think it's a great point. So if, if we go back to the basic requirements for humans, deep connection, and a strong sense of belonging. And one of the things that one of the things that I think organizations don't design really well is they, whilst they talk about collaboration, they're pretty much set up for competition. Um, so the way that we the way that we performance manage people. So if I think about a few different elements of design, so our performance management systems. Um, you know, I've, I've been in some horrible situations of being a manager in the room, and it's like we haven't got enough. We haven't got enough twos or we haven't got enough ones. We need to get people in, in the bell curve. We've got to push them backwards. And it's almost all I, I would just sit there and go, this is working against what it is to be human, which is to be deeply connected. We're actually creating what I'm going to call isolation here for people because at the back end of those things, stuff starts to go wrong. So there's sort of that, there's that competitive, I don't mind um, healthy competition, but when we start to pit humans against each other, I think that, that creates it. If we think from a physical sense, um, you know, the rubbish that goes on today with open planned offices and, you know, people hot desking and go and sit wherever you want and you'll get to meet more people, um, there's a novelty in that for a very short period of time. But what we really want, if, if you're in my tribe, I want to be sitting around you and I want to be building that and forming that deep connection. So I think organisations that have got caught up in the, you know, following the, the next best fad have actually started to create isolation for intact teams. Um, and, and so I think particularly when we come back from what we're going through now, um, you know, where connection has been seen to be so important, we've got to find better ways to, to give people opportunity to do what I call the human work, which is just sitting and talking, um, not necessarily having to deliver something right at that time, but building that that deeper mm-hmm. connection, I think, is important. Um, what else do they do? Jeez. Um, uh, look, I think um, I think the whole way that we we develop talent and we promote people through the organisations as well it's 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 based on what you said before. It's a hundred year old system. 
Um, we promote the technically good people. We promote the people who are also good at managing up and doing all of those things. And then, and the other thing that we do is that we we reward behaviour. It's not necessarily great behaviour, but if it gets results, we sort of turn a blind eye to it. And I think that's a big piece as well. Where um, you know, if we if if we talk about behaviour is important, we shouldn't be. Um, rewarding what I call that sort of, what do they call them? There's a word for them. Um, they're the people that that, that that get the results but actually blow the place up at the same time. So I think there's a few things there that we need to we need to start to look at. Do we do we put more focus on the people who are disruptive and, and create all this not good disruptive, bad disruptive, create um, fractured teams because they're good at what they do or do we look to promote behaviours and know that over time that will actually generate results for us? I think there's a few things there. I would add to that, how intentional are we actually being about our organisational culture in the first instance to understand that we're either promoting behaviour A or we're promoting behaviour B? Yep, yep. And look, with that, um, this is where the bullshit detectors come back in again because people see that. And you know you can you can say whatever you want about your culture and what you want your culture to be. However, um, the very moment that you choose to, to look away from something that you say is not acceptable, that becomes acceptable. That's yeah. that becomes the acceptable practice. And and as humans and as sense makers, we're like, hey, I saw Mark got away with that, and it wasn't great, but. That obviously is what I can do now, and Are that's you, where I can copy that. <laughs> exactly, exactly, <laughs> and, and I think, yeah. and, and 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 you know, this is why managers have such a critical role to play because managers are humans too, and they'll behave in a way that rewards them. So when you when you're on the stage, as I call it, if you're up on the stage as the manager and you aren't behaving in the right way, what do you expect? What do you expect from your people if if you're demonstrating behaviour that's um, that's not aligned with the with the company values or, or what they're trying to create a culture. Yeah. yeah, it's so true. Look, in in the area of human skills, there are a myriad of different things that you could say would categorise themselves under human skills. What are the things that you are seeing are super important in today's workplace and how can we develop some of those? Yeah, so first of all, I want to say congratulations for calling them human skills. Because that other term, that, you know, soft skills that we hear all the time, that needs to be banned. Like get rid of that term because they're not soft. In fact, if they were soft, you know, maybe people would, more people would be practising them. So um, human skills, like the self-awareness piece is is the critical. The, the, the first one for me is self-awareness. Is mm. um, Back to this idea if you don't know self, you, you don't understand self you are going to find it hard to be able to understand and manage others. So self-awareness is is a huge piece. Um, empathy is a big one. And, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I want to say this about empathy. I think at times we can confuse empathy with sympathy. Do you want to dig into what yeah. the differences are for us? Yeah, I do. So with, with empathy... With empathy, standing in someone's shoes and looking through their eyes and, 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 and giving them some assurance about you know how they're feeling because you may have been through it yourself, but at the same time you still want them to make some progress. You're still wanting them to, to, to take some accountability for their for whatever is going to happen in the future. I think with sympathy, sympathy is sort of like feeling sorry for people and this idea that 
I really feel sorry for you. And then what tends to happen then, and I call them the pushover manager then, Michelle, is that the, the sympathetic manager who becomes overly sympathetic starts to take on the work of the people that should be doing it because yeah. they come up with excuses. So empathy empathy is a little bit of tough love. Like I, I like to think of empathy of, in some respects is I'm going to hug you but I sort of want to give you a bit of a kick in the backside at the same time to help you to get to somewhere whereas sympathy is like I'm going to hug you and I'm going to keep hugging you because you need it and that's important but I hug you for so long. In that hug there's a transference of responsibility from the person being hugged to the person who's hugging them and that's not good I don't think. Mm. So, so they're, they're, I think they're a Even couple. Even that, I think it's like it's interesting that you like nuance those things in those ways because if you did a little interview of ten random Australian workplaces and you interviewed two hundred people from each of those ten workplaces, actually, this would be a fun thing to do on LinkedIn. Um, is to get people to describe what they believe empathy is and describe what they believe sympathy is. Because my bet is that the understanding of the differences between those two terms is nowhere near as finely nuanced as what you've just described. Absolutely. And then I'll throw another one in here very quickly. It's like um, the, the, the difference between coaching and telling. Like even when you think of that from a human perspective. Um, so, so what else? Look, compassion. I think compassion is really important as well. I think it's it's something that it's all, it's, again, all of these things that we we hear the words and we're like, oh, geez, well, you know, that sounds great, but that's not what happens at work. Um, authenticity. I know there are, again, words that are thrown out. What do I mean by that one? Um, I, I, I truly believe as a manager you need to be true to your authentic core, whatever that might be, but you also need to understand that every day and and even by the moment you might have to play different roles in, in the business. You could be the boss. You could be the direct report. Um it could be the roles you play outside of the business as well, like partner, um, parent, whatever it might be. And, and my point here is that is that potentially the managers who are getting really good at this, they don't travel far from their authentic core anymore. Because you know that manager at times when you walk in and you're like, I wonder which version of Mark's going to turn up today. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there's this piece of staying authentic is 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 a really important thing. And, and you know, um, vulnerability is huge. I'll finish on that one because I know in my experiment I ran for two years with my team and I asked myself what would happen if I if I treated them like human beings. I had to step into my vulnerability and it sort of started with telling them that I wasn't good at attention to detail, which almost horrified me to let them know that I actually was bad at something. But as I continued to build my muscle around vulnerability, I was able to share with them in the end that, you know, one of the reasons I get involved and try and interfere and rescue them at times is because I lost my dad to suicide. And and that sits with me as something that says I couldn't save him. So I, my, my lot in life today is to try and save mm. other people. I would have never have told them that story at the start of the vulnerability journey. But I told him at the end because I felt safe enough to do that. So yeah. I think vulnerability is an important piece as well. Yeah, it is. So all of these skills that you're talking about, we don't learn them at primary school. We don't learn them at high school. The only way we had a vague chance of learning some of those skills is through our families. And yep. that 
can either be successful or terrible, depending <laughs> on how you measure that. And There's just, no in-between with that one. <laughs> so once you get into the workplace and you realise you're pretty average at some of this stuff, what do you actually do and where do you seek out to develop those really fine human skills that we're talking about? Yeah, I think today, you know, as much as people say that information's at our fingertips and it can be dangerous, I think information at our fingertips now for these people. My 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 advice I gave to myself, first of all, was start reading stuff. Start reading about um, vulnerability and, and, and empathy and start understanding and, and from different people's perspectives. So I think that's that's a really good place to start is to do some research. Um, go on the web. There's lots of good stuff. There's plenty of books you'll find. There's plenty of people who are experts. Um, the other one that I really like is, um, and I find, look, I still find this hard to do, Michelle, is I say we've got three sort of types of humans that that, that we can engage with. We've got our disciples that, that love us with whatever we say and we sort of like hanging around them. Um, mm-hmm. We've got our doubters. We've got the people that sort of are doubting whether or not we know what we're doing or or whether being human's better or whether being technical's better. And then we have the detractors who are just like all of this human stuff's just bullshit. Um, mm-hmm. I actually think the second thing is is you, you need to be able to lean into the perspectives of each of those different groups. Stop hanging around people who think like you and just... Yeah, and, who are reinforcing your reality. And every, everything that you say, Mark, you're an amazing human. And I'm like, after a while, I start to believe my own bullshit if I hear that too often. I find it hard to hang around the detractors because they sort of suck the energy out of you, but you need to do that a little bit. I reckon the really important one here is those people in the middle, the doubters. It's like you're not trying to convince them of anything. You, you want to become curious and you want to understand their point of view. Um, I think with detractors it becomes a bit more of a, a game of rightness. But um, And that's the other thing there is um, I guess all underpinned, Michelle, by curiosity. Yeah, yeah, just, I love that. Curiosity is a, a big one on my list, I have to say, because it, curiosity is so adept at taking the sting out of things where instead of it, instead of a particular conversation or train of thought being judgmental or something like that, you can turn it on its head and you're genuinely curious. Yep. And then you genuinely want to know what the other person's perspective is. And that is, of course, connected to your empathy experience as well. Absolutely. And I know that um, you, you'll know this and I know your listeners would have experienced this, is we spend a lot of time in the workplace trying to convince other people of our rightness. And, and if we keep trying to, you know, I'm right, no, you're right, and then it's like, well, here's the facts, no, here's the facts. And and if we start, can't start to play in curiosity and, and accept other people's perspectives, um, we, we're not doing the work of self. We're actually, we're turning up and literally out that way. You're wrong, yeah. you're wrong. And so curiosity, I think, is a, is a huge piece as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, the last question I want to ask you just before we wrap up, Mark, is about your books that you've written. So yep. I understand there's a little book of human and being human. Is that yeah. right? Yes, it yeah. is, yeah. My book's yeah. called Being More Human, so it's very close <laughs> to being human. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that as well, being more human. I, I remember one time someone saying to me, how can you be more human? And I'm like, well, I, I think you can always be more human. So um and you, you've been through the process. So the first book, Being Human, was, and this is something that if I think about experiments, when I left corporate, I said two things. One was I wasn't going back no matter what. 
and, and I've ticked that one so far. And then the second one was I'm going to write a book. And uh, my first book is really about this this fictional character called Frankie the Robot. And um, and Frankie went through a process of he got rewired to be more like a human and less like a robot. And and all his results were great, but then all of a sudden there was a level of jealousy in the business and then not just jealousy but also we like your results, Frankie, but we don't sort of like the way you do it. Your people are la- the robots are laughing and you're having fun and, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da. So, so the story of Frankie is a little bit of the story of what I went through in my experiment and, and, and sort of the back end of the book is to introduce these seven steps to, to rewiring from the 100-year-old system into this sort of more human way. And I'll also say this is taking some of the, the old way and using that but adding a more human way into it. That's the first book. But in the second book, really, Michelle, I, I sort of thought to myself, I'm standing on my soapbox here saying this is what you should do, but where's the evidence? So in the second book, I interviewed about 30 or 40 people from all around the world. I literally called out on LinkedIn and said, I'm writing a book. I want people to share their stories of human acts of leadership, things they did that they didn't do to get a four or five on the bell curve or their performance score, but they did it because it was right. And I got an enormous um, response to that. So I've literally shared really simple stories from people on things that they did to help people to develop, to create a safety net, to allow for life design or work-life balance, how they connected. And, and so that, that really is, a, is a, a book of stories of people to say, it's just not, Mark's just not making this up. This can actually, this can actually work. And um, yeah, yeah and, and then in the, in the last section of the book, I've got these things called the I told you so's, these things that, that, we hear in our gut first, but we we don't follow it, and then something goes wrong, and, and it's like I told you, I told you so, told you not to do that, and I think they've become pretty popular with people because I want people to start to realise that to be human, you've got to take a bit of that sort of experience and knowledge that you've built, but you've got to trust your gut as well. So that's yeah, that's so true. The first two. That's so true. And just as a wrap up, what advice would you give to our humans at work listeners on being more human? Um, oh, well, what a question. What can I do to be more human? Um, I think that I think you've just got a, this, this ability to ask yourself this question. And this, this isn't a question I made up, a question that came to me from a, a Harvard uh, professor, Marty Linsky, which is, what's my part in the mess? So oh, to, be, to be more human, I think before you can... Again, turn the mirror out. You need to turn the mirror back. And look, Marty asked me that question when I went to Boston and, and did some work with um, the adaptive leadership team. And and I found it really, I just tried to dismiss the question. But when he asked me it six times, <laughs> and seriously, <laughs> in the end now, I, I have a T-shirt that says on it, what's your part in the mess? Because um, if you're going to be truly human, you've got to, understand your part in the mess yeah, before you start and, blaming and even others. if you don't understand your part you've got to be able to navigate it <laughs> yes yeah and then if you don't understand it here's the other thing that you can do when you're human stop and reflect for a while stop going yeah. on to the easy work and reflect and go you know what what is it that i did that created that confrontation with someone what is it that i did that that people couldn't understand what i was saying not not that they couldn't understand because they didn't get it or they were wrong, it's, it's just turning that around. So I think that's, that's the advice I'd leave them with. 
That's so lovely. And that is the most perfect question to wrap up with. What's my path in the mess? Thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate your insights and your wisdom and hearing about your books. Just tell us exactly where people can actually find you if they want to connect with you. Um, Look, LinkedIn, just under Mark Labusque, L-E-B-U-S-Q-U-E. There's not many of us on there. Um, www.com marklabusk.com um, like you I've got a podcast on there called the Simply Practically Human Podcast um, the books are there there's programs and and, and, if, and, and, and they can also subscribe for free to a, a monthly newsletter by just going on there so um, that's, that's the best place to get me awesome thanks again appreciate it 